Welcome to Business Dharma, conversations about the future of business at the intersection of people, planet, profit, and spirituality for leaders, innovators, visionaries, and changemakers. We explore ideas and build the bridge to the future. Tina Gerobelard is a mother, grandmother, a wildlife biologist, regulatory officer, policy analyst, and advocate who has spent her career working with and learning from First Nations communities. Much of Tina's work over the past 15 years has been with Athabasca Dennis Sute on barren ground caribou stewardship using traditional ecological knowledge as the primary source of data. Tina is currently working to create indigenous protected and conserved areas in the traditional territory of the Athabasca Denesute, which will be the first Indigenous protected areas in the province of Saskatchewan. In this episode, Tina shares her life's work on barren ground caribou and her passion for moving beyond mitigation to genuine conservation. She shares the stark reality facing these charismatic creatures, as well as opening our eyes to the impact their declining numbers is having on the communities who depend on the caribou for both sustenance, as well as an essential part of their identity. Tina reminds us of the importance of traditional knowledge and gaining a complete picture of ecosystem ecology, encouraging us to forage an individual connection with the land to awaken compassion and move us into action. Tina, well, thank you so much for being here today. I can't wait to talk to you about some of the work that you've done and the lens that you bring. So welcome, welcome. Thank you. Can you introduce yourself in whatever way feels most authentic to you? Well, my name is Tina Giroux-Robillard. I am, well, I'm a mother. I have a a 22-year-old daughter. I have a stepson who just turned 30 and a beautiful granddaughter who's about to turn four. So that's a new adventure in my life is grandparenting. And it's amazing. I'm a wildlife biologist. I have worked uh, in the field for just about 15 years now. Yeah. And I've kind of ventured into less biology, more Indigenous or First Nation advocacy and environmental rights and things like that. And find it very challenging, but very, like, I, I'm very happy to be able to, I feel like fulfilled in the work that I'm doing. Mm. Can you walk me through, I, I can imagine how it's a natural progression of moving from wildlife biology into more advocacy work. Can you take us through the journey? Well, I could start from the beginning because it. <laughs> Uh, you know, nobody really knows the path that you're going to go down. And I think this is the path that I was meant to be on. When I graduated from my, uh, I have a master's um, in biology, my first job opportunity that was presented to me was, um, it was in fisheries with the Federation of Saskatchewan, or then it was called the Federation of Saskatchewan Indigenous Nations. And that was a, I think, set me on my course. Um, I started the role looking at fish and fish habitat stewardship, working with First Nations on that aspect of the environment. And I was really fortunate to have really good mentors that, although I'm not First Nation, 
um, appreciated my more technical knowledge and they were comfortable and I was honored to be given knowledge of the First Nations way of thinking. And it's in that and how I was raised. So I was raised, my father is a trapper and we were out on the land every weekend and my um, my family kind of grew in an outdoors way. And I knew in that moment that it aligned with my values and how I approached the world and how I viewed the environment and how we should manage it. And so thus began my steep learning curve on um, Indigenous rights and treaty rights and Indigenous laws relating to environment, things like that. So I worked with the FSIN for three years. And then I had the amazing opportunity to be invited into a position uh, with the Athabasca Denesutene. Now, I had, after high school, I had um, moved up to Fond du Lac First Nation. Um, my sister at the time was a pilot, and she was working up there, and she's like, you need to come up here. So I had gone up there and gotten a job as a flight dispatcher. So I, in that time, I had gotten to know the community quite well and integrated quite easily into the community. And so they already knew me. So when they found out I was a biologist, they were like, Tina, you need to come and work with us on Barren Ground Caribou. We're talking about it and we got some funding. And of course, I jumped on it because I love the community and the people there. And like, what an opportunity to work on such a charismatic, beautiful species and still live in Saskatchewan, <laughs> right? Yes. And and I just thought it was such a forward way of thinking at the time, like 15 years ago, well, 12 years ago, they um, to think, okay, we need to hire a biologist, our own biologist, and they're going to work with us. And because barren ground caribou are such an intrinsic part of the Dene culture, right? So I I jumped on that opportunity immediately, and I ended up staying there for over 10 years. And that's where the big jump, I think, for me came. I started doing community-based um, monitoring. So we did like, you know, the scientific biological sampling and processing those. And the biggest thing for me was just sitting down and listening. I mean, they knew way more. <laughs> you couldn't even compare. Like my little education from school compared to their vast libraries of uh, information that's been passed down generations and then generations of caribou, like every aspect of caribou. So it became very, I, I learned very quick that the knowledge is already there. You know, there's not really a need to do a lot of research. You just need to tap into that knowledge in those communities. Communities have been living with caribou for since time immemorial, right? And so what I ended up doing is just collecting a lot of traditional knowledge uh, focusing on what the communities saw as priorities, just just humbling, right? To be in in communities that just know so much. So the foundation of all of the work as a biologist that I was doing was all based on traditional knowledge. So, and then that's how I kind of, I guess, move forward in um, in barren ground caribou management and the communities how they manage. They've always been stewards of the land and stewards of caribou. So they already know all the method methodology and all everything that needed to be done. They just needed me to be the technical side to push that forward. And so the work that the communities have done on barren ground caribou has been really phenomenal. I think, I think they are uh, looked at as being very uh, proactive and very knowledgeable and prepared. 
Um, so I think that's a testament to them as well. And in my work, then became all of the different um, issues that come to these communities, right? And how do we protect the communities? How do we protect the culture? How do we protect the caribou? And so that's where the advocacy also comes in. What is the issue right now with barren ground caribou? What are we up against? Well, barren ground caribou populations, all the populations within Canada, uh, except for one, the porcupine herd, have all been showing decreased, like a trend towards a uh, population decreasing decreases. And so it's come to a level where the government of Northwest Territories has already listed barren ground caribou as threatened under the Northwest Territories Species at Risk Act. But also now the federal government is looking at listing it as well. So that that's enough of a concern because the population numbers are going down so much. So the Athabasca Denisutini, for example, have traditionally harvested three different herds that would all come migrate into northern Saskatchewan in the winter. Those herds have contracted so much that it's getting more and more and more difficult to access the caribou. So there's one herd that's primarily been sustaining the communities now for several years. And so the issue with that is these communities rely so much on caribou for not only their food source, their protein source, which they eat caribou almost every day, all year round. Um, It's also that cultural connection. Who they are as a people is also um, at risk. Now, why the caribou are declining is a question that a lot of people ask. I think natural populations always have a tendency of, you know, being cyclical. They'll go up, they'll go down. You know, this may be just a natural decline. But the question that I think everybody is really concerned about is caribou have never faced so so many impacts at once when their numbers are in decline. And are they going to be able to come back up? Mm. There's a herd, the Bathurst herd, which um, had like almost half a million caribou is now down to like a few thousand. And like this herd is not being harvested, they're being protected, and they're still not really showing any signs of um, coming back. So, you know, there's they have all these different impacts. For example, climate change is an, a big impact to the caribou. How they live their life and is very much in tune with nature. So they, you know, all the cows migrate to a certain area every year at a certain time. And all have their babies all at once in that certain week. And it's timed with like green up in the Arctic, where the, the most nutritious, dense plants come out for the for the calves to uh, to eat. The wolves are having their their pups, so they're not able to travel as far to follow the caribou. You know, it's so perfectly synced. It's amazing. And I just find it super fascinating. But now with climate change. Those things that are so connected are starting to get disconnected. Greenups are happening a little bit earlier or insects have a really big impact on caribou. They, you know, after calving in summer, the caribou all come together and they all cram in together to get away from the bugs and they, the bugs drive them crazy. Right. And then they get really skinny or they get stressed or, you know, they can't, um, they're not very healthy. So with, you know, more, more insects, insect harassment that also impacts on their health. They also need a lot of land to migrate. They have their migratory routes that bring them back to Saskatchewan in the in the winter and then bring them back up north. Industry has played a part in impacting their migra- migration routes. In fact, these 
really precious areas, the cabin grounds that are, you know, very, they're very faithful to those areas. There's been applications for exploration to be happening in there. And, you know, and it's, it's a concern. It's a concern to the Indigenous communities that rely on those. It's a concern that there is no place that's sacred. We're finding that, um, at least lately, I don't know too much about this, this last uh, survey, but the cow-calf ratios of, you know, how many calves are actually able to survive. And in order to have a stable population, you need at least 30% calves to cows. So at least, you know, and that hasn't been met. You know, for every 10 cows, you should have th- at least three calves surviving. And right now we're not at that. And, and it has to go, go above that for the population to go up. So when cows are stressed out, they might be aborting as well, right? So there's a whole bunch of different issues. When the populations go down, of course, harvest has more impact, right? Oh, and because of climate change, it's really relevant in Saskatchewan because climate change is causing forest fires that are hotter, um, more frequent, and larger than usual. And so they are, because of the heat, they're burning all of this prime caribou habitat. The reason that caribou come back into northern Saskatchewan is the beautiful, is the rich lichen and the cover, right? And right now they there's so much burnt that there's very little caribou um, habitat that remains. So the communities are very concerned. They want those areas protected from fire because it's the only link that brings the caribou back to them. Tina, I... I actually feel myself shaking, which like doesn't happen to me very often. And it's like, I can actually feel my heart breaking as you're talking. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it seems overwhelming. Um, and I think that's the challenge of this job is to not let it become too much. And you think you're just like treading water and you're barely getting anywhere. But I think that there are certain, uh, I think people are, well, I, I think it's a good thing that the federal government is looking at listing. I think that's going to uh, have, you know, if ever they are listed, then it'll force everybody to look at, you know, uh, a strategy on protecting the range of the caribou, right? And I think habitat's a big one, a big one, yeah. And one of the things that the communities are doing is looking at protecting areas that are very key to uh, caribou habitat. I, I want to jump into the indigenous protected areas, but before I go there, I'm wondering if you need to tell me why a Western traditional scientific lens isn't enough when looking at this issue, why we need traditional knowledge to help us understand the gravity of this as well as potential paths forward. Well, the the Dennis Utene and the other Indigenous groups that are so connected to caribou, they know caribou on a long-term scale, like over generations and generations and generations. Scientific knowledge is quite young in comparison to traditional knowledge. Um, So one of the things, I love this story because I still get like super impressed, but every time that I start to, to, to... question like maybe we should be listening to western science compared to i'm always proven wrong and i'm always you know brought back down and um 
you know, reminded to be humble in that. So one of the things that one of the very first things actually that I learned from the elders is like, uh, they kept telling me, Tina, they caribou, they don't like power lines. They really don't like power lines. They avoid them. They are scared of them. They won't come near them. Right. And I kept saying that I kept documenting that over time. And I, and then I believed them. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. But then at this scientific study came out not too long ago that shows that because of the caribou's uh, like how they see that p- the power lines, they see this electromagnetic glow in these power lines and their eyes are, are more keen to see that because their eyes are kind of trained to see lichen. And so if for whatever reason, I don't understand the biology of the eye enough to share that, but th- because their, their eyes are look for this lichen, this like white glow lichen, they're way more susceptible to this electromagnetic force that's around um, power lines. And so that kind of explains why they would be so sensitive to these and, and, and avoid them because it's like a, a, not a natural thing. So it's things like that, that I think um, things like uh, caribou behavior, how they react to things. I think traditional knowledge far surpasses uh, scientific knowledge. And I think Traditional knowledge also brings in a whole spiritual side of things that we do not understand. But I feel like it's very important that we don't dismiss it. Because again, I've been proven, like, once you actually sit and listen and learn and then see for yourself, I don't question anything, including the spiritual aspects of what the the Denier are saying. So, for example, you know, using the drum to bring caribou back, all the stories about um, the legends about caribou leaving and then how they brought them back, which I'm not going to share. <laughs> but it's um, it's so full of information and knowledge and at a level that is not comparable to Western science. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that right, but. I, I think you are. And I'm wondering if you could talk about it from your lens, because I spend a lot of time thinking about paradigms and the Western paradigms and how we break things into it's kind of the sum of its components and it's mechanical and it has value because we could extract it on a market and it provides us. And what I hear you saying is there's this spiritual context and that it's so much more, mm-hmm. there's this interconnected relationship and that there's something intrinsic in the value of the caribou. And I'm wondering if you can touch on how you've changed with, with how you kind of see humans relationships with the natural world and the challenge with looking at it from the Western paradigm versus what this more interconnected view or spiritual view, as you called it, gives us. Well, I think generally the our society is disconnected to nature. Like even if you live, you know, outside of a city or whatever, it's still we're not as connected as we used to be. And I think that that disconnect is creating this, um, I guess, lack of empathy. Right? We're so used to our our uh, comfort in our homes and our heat. I was just at a culture camp and it came back last week and I really fully appreciated that experience because it takes you totally out of your comfort zone. 
puts you in this remote area. There's no technology, right, that works up there. And you're winter camping and you have to like work to for your comforts. You have to get your wood to get heat in the morning. You have to boil your water and to make coffee. And it's just my husband and I were laughing because we we're like, he would get up and it would take him an hour before he could sit down and have his coffee, <laughs> you know, and we so made us appreciate the comforts of our home. But I think it illustrates that people want to stay in their comfort. They don't want to venture out into that, that world that's more connected to nature. And I think that's why we are tend to look away when we see all this impact from all this consumption that we're doing, right? That we'd rather have a nice heated home and, uh, you know, a fridge full of exotic <laughs> foods and things like that, right? And I, I mean, I'm the same. I'm not even being, <laughs> I just noticed it. I just appreciated more having experienced that, right? And so it's hard to, um, and even the communities up north, they, you know, they struggle with housing, all these social issues. So it's really hard to, or it's easy to see why the draw of like industrial development, economic development is there. And there is a need for that, right? That like that need for income and jobs. But then they also have this beautiful land that is still accessible to them. And that connection with um, with the land is so much more, is so much deeper than their well, for the most part, anyways, generalizing for that economic development, which is why, in my opinion, there's not that much economic development up there besides the uranium mines. But so you have this, these industries that want to come in, and they, they're like, well, it's not really going to impact you, because we're just going to go there. And we're not going to take very much, we're just going to make these uh, cut lines, and we're going to be there for a couple months. And then we'll leave. And then oh, we found something, we're going to come back. Well, how is that really you have this all this other forest, right? <laughs> you can go trapping here, you can go hunting there. But I think what the what people are missing is that that area, and this is also something that really impacts me is like, every area of that vast land that is northern Saskatchewan, or New Henene is the traditional territory of the Athabasca Denny is that they know every bit of that area, like you and I know our backyard. There's stories. Every lake, every bay has a story. And, or they'll be like, oh, come in, come over here. I'll show you something. And all of a sudden they show me this like frame of a, of a cabin. Or yeah, or they have like birth and death stories of these different areas. There's burial sites. Like there is so much knowledge and history and each square kilometer of that land, right? And so you can't, it's hard for industry or governments to really fully understand that, that you can't really take that area of land and, and think that it can be replaced somewhere else. Because for that family, like, you know, there's different families, areas and things like that, that really impact them. So I think that's the kind of the balancing act that we're faced with today, right? So you have this um, science, for example, that's coming in and being like, well, we can mitigate, which is as a biologist, I think mitigation is like the hardest thing. I actually don't really think you can actually really like mitigate well. You can try and do things as best you can to decrease the impacts, but the impacts to that family or that community will be felt at a different level that you can't mitigate. And I think that's where that science and that traditional kind of knowledge or way of way of knowing or living on the land is different. And so I always try and work 
within the within the world of traditional knowledge. So to see full, try and understand fully what the impacts are of these developments and try and work with the community to minimize that because I mean I, communities aren't against economic development but we need to like find ways of doing it in a better way, right? So like an example is you know caribou that come in. So industry or government or even science is saying, well, yeah, if you see a caribou you can stop your work. But in a forest that's not very far, right? And you will never <laughs> The caribou won't come that close if you're making a bunch of of noise and if there's a lot of pollution and stuff like that. So you've already made an impact of where the caribou are coming, but you don't really need to do anything if you don't see the caribou, right? So it's you've already impacted the community and you don't even know it. I don't, and I'm not saying industry doesn't try and really like make a good effort because I think nowadays people are starting to understand, but it's still very difficult. Right. I'm hearing there's a trying going on, but to actually minimize impact is quite difficult to do because of the sensitivity of the species in the land. Well, yeah. And the connectedness of the people to that land. So it's, it's hard and it's very hard to articulate that as a community. Something that coming up for me when you're talking about how we love our conveniences. I heard the term recently, fatal convenience, uh, to describe so much of the homo sapien condition and our propensity to move towards what's quick and easy and cheap and gives Mm -hmm. comforts. And when you describe your time in the culture camp, your survival becomes so connected to the place that you're at and the relationship with that that you start to look at it through a different lens. How can you not? But when we're pulled out of that and my convenience is my grocery store, my sustenance is farmers in Mexico that I have no relationship with. And I think it does become harder to actually grapple with the reality that your life and your actions might be impacting things. Oh yeah. And I, and I have to just make a comment on that culture camp too, is like, when we're there, and and I feel like I'm pretty comfortable out on the land. I was taught, you know, uh, quite a bit, but I felt so like I think it pales in comparison to like the Denisutene that were up there. They are on a different level. Their comfort level and their ability to to just fix any problem that might come up. Um, how they read the land, how they read the caribou, you know, on their hunts, how they, you know, how they hunt, how they butcher. It's next level. It's so impressive. It's like the strength of the community physically and mentally and how adapt they are to any situation. It blows my mind every time. And I think it's a testament. And like, I would aspire to that. And I think, you know, if, if ever we're in a situation where we need to go back to the land, I think it is true how they say the indigenous communities are going to come back stronger than ever Mm -hmm. because they have retained those skills. And I think that that's so important in this day and age. A couple of things I want to touch on. I think we're getting to indigenous protected areas. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could take us there through one thing when you and I were on retreat, when I brought up the act of visioning, you're like, I am all about visioning. I think you see something in your mind's eye. You have to think about the world that you're going to create. And that's how you bring it into reality. And Mm -hmm. I see the indigenous protected areas, how I've interpreted it is like a sacred. No, (laughs) is how I've kind of seen it in that. um, No can be a beautiful word because it means yes to all these other things and the start of that vision. But I'm wondering if you can take us into 
the vision of these areas and also how and how they're starting to move forward with a change on how things are doing and creating something different. Indigenous communities have, they've always been stewards of the land. Conservation protection is part of Indigenous law. And so without going back into the history of colonization and all that, and all that disconnect that has been happening in the last hundred years or so, I think it's just returning back to giving back control of land back to the Indigenous communities. And I think that's completely necessary and important. And I think nobody can do it better. And so these Indigenous protected areas that we're working on in the, in the Athabasca region are coming from the communities. The communities are deciding where these areas should be. And that was probably the hardest part for them to decide is because all land should be protected or it should be managed in a way that fits their values, right? And, you know, so the areas that are protecting, the, I guess, the vision moving forward, there's, there's a bunch of guiding principles that we were that the communities came out with that we needed to, to keep in mind when, you know, establishing protected areas and they go from a- anything from what, you know, the obvious, we need to protect the land and water. Everything's for the future generation. So this is a long-term thing. You know, we need to, caribou is like paramount, right? It, it's so connected that you can't even think about having Denny people without having the ability to have caribou, right? Um, you know, elders, they guide us, you have to use them. They're the ones that, you know, it's that elder and youth are so important, right? It's for the future, but we need the wisdom of the past to guide the future, right? And and language, language is so connected to the land. There's There's words and there's terms describing the environment that you can't even really explain in English. And that's how you need that cultural, that language retention and use in these areas, right? So all of that is being considered when establishing these protected areas. So it's, and the scale in which these areas should be, because the Dene area is a whole different scale in like distance, right? Because they're like caribou, caribou travel all the way to the Arctic coast and come back in the winter to feed. That's like an immense distance area of land so the Denny kind of have that same perspective with land like what seems humongous for us is like not really for for them because they understand how much caribou how much land caribou need so all that being considered these areas that they've selected have been selected because they fit into the criteria of important caribou habitats important cultural spaces there's some ancient trails that have been used for thousands of years that you can see embedded in the stone, in the rocks, in the forest that for just from constantly being used. There's, um, you know, clusters of cabin foundations of these settlement areas that used to be used all the time, right? So there's that deep, rich knowledge of the land and why those areas are important. So when you have that deep knowledge of those areas, you know what should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed. So one of the general consistent messages we've been hearing from the communities when protecting these areas is that they don't want mining or exploration to happen in these areas because that's what they see as hurting the land in their area. Everything else, you know, seems to be 
something that could be managed as long as the communities are making the decisions on on what happens in these areas. But it's also exciting because one of the things that I've been hearing a lot is, you know, there used to be so much more families and it would spend time on the land and they're saying the land is lonely. We need to go back, right? There's that real palatable feeling of the land being lonely. And so what we're trying to do with these protected areas too is build that that connection again, that accessibility, right, to these areas and, and build that knowledge between the elders and the youth is not... Um, it's still happening, but um, not to the extent as it should be, you know, technology, games, video games, things like that, right? Phones. Um, youth are not sitting in with the elders as much as they used to be. They're not learning the story. So these protected areas in a way, you know, facilitated by guardians or community land technicians, you know, are, are going to try and, and start facilitating that process. Not that it doesn't happen. I shouldn't say it like it doesn't happen. Like they just, there was just a culture gap where that kind of stuff wouldn't happen. But something more consistent, right? Something somewhere to be more of an, you know, to use as education. Tina, when you said the land is lonely, that just struck me. Wow. Yeah. And I think it just shows. So one of the values is actually the Dene are part of the ecosystem. And I think that's exactly part of that statement that the land is lonely because the Dene people are part of the land. They're part of the ecosystem. Like, you know, just like a wolf is or a, a fish is, or, you know, they belong there. Mm. They need to be in there. Everything's connected. Yeah. But I, I think when I asked about vision for the future, to me, what a beautiful vision is that humans learn from the Dene people. Um, and we learn how to be part of the ecosystem versus something opposing it. Yeah. That's not just Dene. I mean, it's a, it's an indigenous value, right? So tell me if you could pick just one thing that industry needs to know and understand and believe about the indigenous protected areas, what would it be? It would be that they don't have to worry. Business is not closed in the North. It's just... I think it actually industry would benefit from protected areas because you would just know that, okay, this area is a no-go zone. And so let's just concentrate on a different area and let's really work with the community because, you know, um, I think industry just wants certainty and this will give certainty and the communities just want that balance. Right. Cause like lately they've been just been so many um, exploration permits, just permits being requested and it's, it's hitting the communities at a pace that is unsustainable. You know, these communities have so much capacity with lands and resources offices and things like that, but it's to take a step back and be like, okay, there's a lot of interest in our, in our area. There's a lot of minerals and, you know, uranium and things like that. So that's, that's good. There's an opportunity there, right? But let's make sure there's a balance. And by protecting these areas, these prime caribou habitats that have so much value not only um you know culturally as well that you can do that development in an area and not feel like you're you know feeling like there's some balance mm -hmm. so it's it's certainty and balance i think industry just needs to acknowledge that and i think that's something that's common throughout canada now in different jurisdictions right there's like okay there's that respect of like 
We don't need to have access to every single spot of mineral, you know? Right. And when you look at the mineral areas within the north, there's some really high mineral potential areas that are outside of the protected areas, like a lot of them. Like there's, you know, it's definitely not shut down to, to um, economic development for sure. It's just the balance and the long-term protection because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. One of the things that struck out to me, pre-COVID, I was flying quite a bit. And so I was constantly looking down at the landscape and I was from Saskatoon to Houston and then Saskatoon out to Ontario. And I, I couldn't believe how fragmented the landscape was and how few true wild spaces are left. And it got me thinking on how we harp on deforestation in the Amazon. But if we look at our North American landscape, we have disturbed so much in these united corridors, these wild spaces. There really isn't much left. Um, when you when you go up to the sky and you look, and I, I start to ask myself the question, well, when do we start reversing this trend? And how do we do that when there still seems to be this appetite for more and more when it doesn't take somebody trained as a biologist to fly across North America and ask, well, where's this more coming from? There's not as much left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like the boreal forest, the Canadian boreal forest, I think is it's known as the, what, the lungs of the world. You know, it's becoming this really important area. And, you know, you, you look at Canada on a map and you think, oh yeah, we have so many, so much air, so many trees, so many forests, but Um, and even, you know, people from Saskatchewan that look at Northern Saskatchewan, they think, oh, it's this beautiful expanse of untouched forest, which in a sense it is. But when you do fly over it, like you, you see all these, you see cut lines, you just see cut lines the whole way. I even was able to do a scouting trip when I was on that culture camp and we went all the way to the border to Northwest Territories in Manitoba and even up there, cut lines. (laughs) You know, and so it's a small, it's fragmentation on a smaller scale, but even that fragmentation is already having an impact on the, on the wildlife and how the, you know, how animals and those communities use the land, right? Because fragmentation impacts predator, prey relationships, things like that, right? So just on that even small scale, there's impacts. So when you zoom out and you start looking at the world it's like yeah you can start to see why people are concerned about the environment and why we're starting to get sick and why it's starting to have impact on our you know climate change so so this is a bit of a philosophical question but I think you'll go there with me what what do you think happens to us as a species when we shut down we don't actually feel the heartbreak of these charismatic creatures in decline of these relationships that have been going on for millennial between humans and species and this deep connection to the earth. What, what happens to us as a species when we stop caring about that? Well, uh, personally, I think that that's where all our social, our social issues, all of the violence, all of the depression, all of, you know, the negative um, forces that are in our society. If, if we healed our relationship with the land, we would heal a lot of that relationship amongst ourselves there's there's this book it's like hello I can't remember her name but I'm recovering from western society and she's a scientist <laughs> that talks about 
Very, very similar that there is a, a crazy making inherent in the paradigm that we're living this economic cog that we must keep spinning. Mm-hmm. I, I realize we're getting close to the end. Kind of two things I want to touch on. The first is so much of the work that you do is in service of helping Indigenous communities speak across to industry and stand up for their rights. I'm wondering, in your opinion, what would conscious industry look like? Well, I think conscious industry would involve First Nations from the get-go. Like it's industry engages with government, but in Indigenous governments are also there. And I think you need to start at that kind of level when you're even just starting to consider doing some work and engaging people in the community and working with the community and, um, you know, supporting the community. So there's that whole, you know, social aspect or like, you know, you have so many multi-million dollar businesses that go in there and there's these communities that, you know, are struggling with housing or with water quality and things like that. Right. Like how can you do business and make sure all your stakeholders are padding their bank accounts, but yet not, really look at how you could really influence um, the communities there that are like across the lake from you or, you know. um, On your definition of stakeholder. Well, to me, a stakeholder is, you know, whoever's benefiting from a mine, right, on that scale. Indigenous communities are not stakeholders. (laughs) I am adamant about that. They are rights holders, you are in their territory. They are way more than stakeholders, right? Mm-hmm. And so like the profits margins and all those kind of things are one thing. And I, I get that that's driving all of this industry. But I think to be socially conscious, culturally conscious of actually where you are and the land you're on and the communities you're by, you never know what could happen in a mine, you know, if a tailings pond <laughs> released into the lake that they're like, there's some risk there, right? And that's why there's always compensation and things like that. But the compensation to me is inadequate for for what the communities are giving up. And I think that's a big disconnect. I think industry doesn't really see there being an issue. They're not really impacting, right, is what they think. I think for a a really forward-thinking industry is you work with the community to build that community up, not just do the bare minimum. Well, I really appreciate your thoughts on this. Tina, I could keep talking to you for another hour. I I think you have such an incredible insight. And I can see that this work has changed how you see, shape, feel, think about the world, think about your vocation, think about your place in it. And as my final question, I am wondering if you can share what has been the biggest change in yourself on your personal evolution through the work. And you said you always had this connection to land, but almost seen it in a different light or lens through the traditional views and lessons and teachings that have been shared with you. On a career like at a view that using traditional knowledge as your source of data as a biologist is powerful and just as strong and that it's um, 
that you can use that. Like that is something that I would have never thought, you know, going into this field that I would do and I would be a hundred percent comfortable with, and I would actually like push towards. So like, you know, technical way I think that's something that I would do and also being um, humble and just knowing that you will not know every you will not know everything about the environment like your communities do or like the indigenous communities do no matter what like those elders have like triple PhDs (laughs) right so it's just like you know if you have a really respected professor you like to just sit with them and just absorb their knowledge and that like that's been my career so it's just like I feel like I've gotten more from that than anything that I could have read in in any book or in you know in any class so I think I, I mean that would be if I could recommend one thing for people in my field that don't have an opportunity to work directly with First Nations is to find any opportunity to sit with an elder that will share you know their knowledge or in a respectful way you know and just absorb it you know just uh be humble mm, be humble Mm-hmm. fantastic final words tina and thank you so much for this interview for the work that you do with the caribou and for the bridge building i see you as such a big bridge builder after sitting with you for this last hour and i wish you the best of luck in shifting the paradigms changing that consciousness and figuring out how we go forward in a different way thank you very much welcome mm-hmm.